Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. With me is fellow morsel, Emily Greenwald. Emily, welcome. Thanks, Tim. Great to see you. Oh, it's wonderful. So let's just kick off. Can you just give everyone just a little bit of background of what you did at Yale and what you're doing now? Sure. And just stop me if I go too long. But I started at Yale planning to go to medical school, but found that history courses were really interesting to me and that I could fulfill the pre-med requirements while being a history major. So I decided to do that. I was a little intimidated by the sciences and the people who were majoring in molecular biology and biophysics or biochemistry and biophysics. I can't remember what MB and B stood for, but that was where I thought I was going to be. And instead I got really interested in history, was still planning to go to med school, but then my senior year, I was not ready to take the MCATs And I was working on a senior essay in history on an Indian water rights case in New Mexico. And so that got me thinking, well, maybe what I want to do is law, Indian law. And I left Yale, found a job working for a law firm in D.C. that represented tribal clients where I was doing historical research. And I found that that through friend at Yale, one of my colleagues in the New Blue singing group. And through that job, I decided that no, history is really where I want to be. And I ended up going to graduate school in history. So you became Dr. Greenwald, just a different kind of doctor. I, I did. I did. And While I was in grad school, I did not start out thinking that I wanted to be an academic, but I was in a program at Yale. I got my PhD at Yale as well. I was in a program that was definitely geared toward becoming a faculty member, becoming a professor of history. So I ended up going that route, but in academia, I was... I didn't have the approach to it. And maybe this is similar to how I approached my studies at Yale. I didn't have the approach to it that was incredibly motivated. I'll do whatever it takes to be successful at this. And I was, I did not meet the, uh, I guess, the measures for being a successful academic. I didn't get tenure at University of Nebraska, where I was a faculty member. And then I started looking for other academic jobs. And long story short, I ended up also looking at non-academic jobs and ended up where I am now as a history consultant, a career that I knew nothing about when I was 
in college or in graduate school. But as it turns out, a lot of the experiences that I had along the way really helped prepare me for what I do now. Okay. So before we get into what a historical consultant is, because I find that fascinating, um, just where do you live? I live in Missoula, Montana, which happens to be where Historical Research Associates, the company that I work for, run, and am part owner of, is based. It uh, was founded by a couple of graduate students at the University of Montana. And I'm just really lucky to get to live here and have a great job here in a place that I really enjoy living. Are you originally from Montana? No, I'm from Ohio. Midwestern girl, but starting starting when I was a senior in high school, I got really fascinated with the West and my family went on a trip to the Southwest where my aunt was a doctor for the Indian Health Service. She had an influence on me both in my career aspirations and in my love of the West. And so I'm really happy to have landed in a great Western town. So what are your favorite things to do in Missoula? I love Missoula. So I've only been there a couple of times, but what are the things you like to do? Missoula has a lot of access to public lands in the surrounding area. So hiking is great. I do a lot of biking. I, I was doing some biking before I met my husband, but he's a serious cyclist. So I've done even more and we got a tandem that we ride around and that's a lot of fun. The only way I can keep up with him is by riding a tandem. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You're always together. But yes, but we can talk about this later. A tandem is a really good sort of metaphor for relationships. And we have learned a lot about ourselves and our relationship through riding the tandem. Anyway, I bet, so <laughs> I bet you do. I bet you do. So let's get to like, what is a historical consultant? Historical consultants are, we're consultants like other consultants. We work for a variety of clients who need services of someone who understands how to find historical evidence, how to use archives, where to look for records from the past, and how to make sense of them. Because as some people have said, the past is a foreign country. You have to be able to step inside that world and understand how people thought at a point in the past to make sense of what they were writing, how they were reporting their observations or commenting on what was going on at that point in time. So we both find the material and make sense of it. We have three areas in which we work primarily. One is historical interpretation, which would be developing content for physical or digital exhibits about the past, helping museums and historic sites develop interpretive plans for historical collections, historical exhibits. So that's one area. Second area is doing work connected to litigation, where attorneys are working with issues that reach back into the past, and they need to find and understand the evidence that was produced in the past. And then the third is we do a lot of what we call institutional history. Primarily, it's for government agencies, but looking at the history of an entity, of an organization, and 
tracing how decisions were made over time so that current and future managers can learn from the past and use that information to make good decisions going forward. So taking your discipline as a historical consultant, how does the current framework that you're working in, so the political, if you're dealing the political reality of today, influence how you look at the past when you're dealing with a government or a legal dispute or something like that? It's interesting. I think I have two different answers to that because what's happening currently with discussions of race, equity, diversity, and inclusion is really informing how we approach historical interpretation and institutional history and trying to elevate underrepresented histories trying to call attention to them, trying to involve communities in creating, generating their own histories instead of it just being told by outsiders who think they they understand the past. But so making it more of a grassroots effort that really speaks to community needs and community understanding of their own history. Litigation, I feel like it's something different where you have to kind of put politics aside to some extent and put current events aside and just try to practice your discipline in an objective fashion. And it's hard sometimes because we work a lot in environmental law and Native American law where we end up sometimes working for what you might think of as the more sympathetic client, sometimes working for the less sympathetic client, and you have to practice your discipline in the same way, according to the same best practices, whoever your client is, whatever your political leanings are. But sometimes it can be challenging because you feel like maybe the outcome of the work you're doing is not going to align with where your political views are. Yeah, I find it interesting because I, I mean, I'm a litigator. And at the end of the day, what my job really is mostly about is not arguing about what the law is or should be, although sometimes I do do that. But most of it is crea- crafting a narrative of what happened, uh, dealing with the case right now uh, concerning Afghanistan. And what happened over the last 15 years is the fundamental question the case poses. And the key facts are really not the major facts are not in dispute. When did we start sending troops to Afghanistan? When did we withdraw troops from Afghanistan? And what happened in between those things? Who was killed? Who was not? But really the why, why did people do what they do, is the thing that's hotly contested. What was in people's hearts? Because intent is part of the case. And which facts you choose to highlight and how you arrange the facts impact your narrative. And so we have a competing narrative that, you know, they're really smart folks on the other side that are looking at the same body of events and are coming up with a narrative that says there's certain people that should be held to account. And the lawyers on my side are saying, no, the people who should be held to account or blamed for the harm are the Taliban or the people behind the Taliban. And that's not us. So those competing narratives are sort of what I do for a living. And when I look at the discussions that people are having about where we are as a nation, what happened on January 6th, what our history of racial relations means. It's really a fight about comparative narratives often. It's informed by a perspective or an outcome someone wants. 
and thinking about how to marshal the rhetoric that will resonate with people today to advocate a particular view of what the historical record means, you know, is something that I think everyone's wrestling with. And I guess my question to you is, when you're thinking about our experience as a class of 1987, we've certainly been in the news as a class, how does your, where you sit now, change the way you think about what we did in 1983, 84, and until we graduated? How do you keep what happened as undergraduates in perspective? And does that perspective change? I just asked a lot, but yeah, there, there it is. I don't know if I have a great answer for you. I think that when I was in college, I was not particularly attuned to larger political debates or conversations about race, gender, sexuality. And part of that might have been the insulation that I brought with me from growing up in the Midwest. I don't know. Part of it might have been my lack of curiosity at that point in time about the larger world. I don't know what it was. I think I had a more narrow view. And that's part of growing up too. I think for me, maybe I'm what you would call a late bloomer. And it's just taken me a long time to really be able to situate myself into these larger discussions I don't think I ever did in college. And whether that was because I was deliberately insulating myself from it or oblivious or what, I don't know what it is, but I have evolved. Let's hope we all have. Yes, I I, I certainly hope so. And as I look back at things, you know, I really thought going back to what I was thinking when I was graduating from high school before entering college, I don't. I was like you, I'm from the Midwest. I came from, you know, I think sort of naive perspective about a lot of things. The high school I went to was pretty homogenous and going into a college environment that was very diverse, I was just excited to meet everybody and wasn't really thinking necessarily about the bigger picture of where they were coming from. But now looking back, I think about that partially because we have our own kids in college and thinking about where they're coming from and where their peers are coming from and how that's all sort of coming together and, and shaping them as people. Um, as you look back at your time at Yale, are there experiences that may not have seemed significant at the time, but now looking back on it, you think are significant to your development as a person? That's a really good question. I so I have a stepson who is applying to colleges now, and I've been thinking about writing something, you know, handing him a little booklet when he starts college that has my advice for how to do how to do college better than the way I did it. I feel like I'm not sure, in other words, that there are experiences from college that really shaped me in retrospect. There must have been. But I feel like when I was in college, I was a lot more reserved closed off than I am now, that I didn't make connections with people. I mean, I made a lot of connections with people. I had friends and I loved I loved the people there. I really had a great experience being exposed to a wide variety of people and forging those deep friendships. But I think I still traveled in a little 
bubble and I was not good at reaching out to people who were not the same as me. And I also came from a very homogenous town in high school. So I don't think I really broke out of that while I was in college. I wish I had. I wish I had done better there. So I kind of want to point my stepson more in that direction to reach out more, to challenge yourself more, to get over out of your comfort zone, get over hurdles that you have that otherwise can take a really long time to break through. And that's sort of the experience that I have had as an adult. It's taken me a long time to really be able to open myself up and engage on a different level with people and take the experiences of people who are different from me a whole lot more seriously and try to empathize with them. I mean, I don't think I'm an unempathetic person or that I was in college, but I do think that I have had to evolve a lot from where where I was then. And so I look back on some of the interactions that I had with people in college and wish that I could have done better, that I could have, have been more open and more curious when I was a college student. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. Do you think that your study of indigenous cultures and the events surrounding land rights and the other things you've described earlier in your academic process and what you do for a living now has helped with that evolution? I do, because I think for a long time, I was approaching it in a much more academic fashion. Like I'm really fascinated with this history, with this experience and how how things came to be. But over time, I have come to, I guess, try to envision what that journey meant for the people who lived it and not so much like, wow, this is a really fascinating story that I want to pick apart. So I I guess my perspective on it has shifted some, and that has a lot to do with how society, how my colleagues push me, how the discussions that we have been having, not just recently, although recently it's been much more intense, but starting when I was in grad school and got more exposure to what was then called the new social history. I think that doing work in that area definitely has made me shift my perspective from an academic one to much more of a personal one, trying to understand what it's like to stand in somebody's shoes. And maybe that is partly a fault of how I learned history in college and grad school. Maybe it's partly a fault, again, of me and how I have had approached the world in the past. Interesting. You know, I, I just had a recent experience that I think is is relevant, was at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. and 
there they have uh, the bus where Rosa Parks refused to sit at the back of the bus. And walking into the bus and really imagining what that confrontation must have been like and how close together everyone was made me understand with much greater emotional impact really what that event meant and the courage it took to do what she did. And I think being able to empathize is something I can do much more now as an adult than I certainly could have when I was studying history as a child. And I just think uh, putting ourselves in the place of the people that we're considering is really an important thing to do. I had a similar experience to that. I think this was after grad school while I was an academic teaching at University of Nebraska. I went to I think it's called Pecos Pueblo National Monument, but I can't, I don't recall the exact name. It's in New Mexico. It's not too far from Santa Fe. And I used to go to Santa Fe a whole lot because I have, have relatives there and I was really fascinated by the Southwest. So Pecos Pueblo is the ruins of a former Pueblo, an indigenous community. And it sort of sits in a location at the junction of the plains where people from Plains culture groups traded with people from the Puebloan culture groups and they had different life ways, but they had a lot of exchange. And standing in that landscape and standing in the ruins of the Pueblo, I suddenly could see the history in a different way. I'm not saying I could see it perfectly. It's still through my lens, through my vision, but I just had this powerful experience of the space that made me realize the connection between history and landscape. I have for a long time really valued being able to stand in the places where the events that I'm studying happened. And that was a really profound experience of that kind for me there. Also, being in in great exhibits where they bring material culture or video or spoken voice or bit large scale immersive experience like you had in this bus I mean to to do anything to take you out of your present day world and situate you in that past world really can help tell the story And so I find that power in landscapes like you found in the bus. Let's just switch gears here. You mentioned tandem bicycles earlier. What has riding a tandem bicycle with your husband taught you about relationships? Riding a tandem takes a lot of cooperation, communication, and coordination. And it's a great... It's a great test of how successful you can be at those things. It For me, it's really enjoyable. It's a fun way to ride bikes together, to be together, to be able to talk together uh, in a way that you can't on single bikes, especially if you have differential skill levels like we do. But you have to, you have to communicate, you have to trust. And that's especially important for the stoker position, which is where I ride. So there's the captain is the person in the front, the stoker is the person in the back. You have no control over anything when you're in the stoker position. You can communicate with the captain and say, hey, can you switch gears or slow down, which is an issue for me. I, when we're going downhill, I can mostly see 
Jim's shoulders and not a whole <laughs> lot around there. So, I mean, you're really, you're really blind in a sense back there, not entirely, but you have to have a lot of trust. And I, until I met Jim, I had complete control over my life, what I did every day, how I lived, what I chose to do. And I was completely in control and I'm kind of a control freak. So being a tandem rider and giving up that control and having that trust and also being able to live with the fear of not having the control, being in, being in the back has really, I think, been a, a, an encapsulation of what it's been like for me to meet him and then get married and start on this, this journey together. You know, he's, he is my first really serious relationship. Again, I, as I said, I'm a late bloomer. And so the tandem has just been not only a centerpiece of our experiences together, but part of my learning how to be in a relationship. Fortunately, we have great communication and trust, so it works out all right. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I've uh, done tandem a couple of times, and I have to say the Stoker position was not for me, so maybe I have to work on my control issues. Great. Well, now is the time in the podcast where we go into our lightning round, where I ask you, I fire off questions at you and see, see what you think. So what I'd like you to do is respond as quickly as you can in short bursts, and we'll get a bunch of questions out. So first thing, what would you like to be known for? I'd like to be known for being kind and helpful. What is the most important class you took at Yale? History of the American West with Bill Cronin. What's the most interesting book you've read recently? Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, which is Frank Bruni's book about college admissions. Probably very apt because you're going through the process right now. Um, yeah. When we get, or well, you're not, but your, your stepson is, has there been any silver linings during COVID for you? I have enjoyed working from home. It was really hard for me at first, but I get to spend a lot more time with my husband. We get to have lunch together. I, I really enjoy that. That's been a real silver lining. I think another thing is because we have a very far-flung staff, I have a pretty similar relationship with people I work with regardless of where they are because it's all through Zoom and everything. So I've gotten to know some of my colleagues from other locations in a different way, which I really appreciate. Other than biking, do you have any other hobbies? Biking, hiking, we got a van recently. So van camping has been a lot of fun. I love to sing, but I don't do it in any formal venue. I just sing to myself and amuse my husband with it. <laughs> that sounds great. All right. Um, final, final question. Sally's or Peppy's? Uh, modern a pizza. Nice, nice. You know, I was on a plane just the other day for the first time in a long time, and they had a history of pizza documentary, and it highlighted wow. highlighted three restaurants, and only three, Sally's, Peppy's, and Modern. So a very good answer. It was fascinating because it wrapped up the uh, the history of pizza with the history of New Haven. Some of it, a an uplifting story of 
immigrants and immigration and people forming a new life in New Haven and the United States and using pizza as a way to literally feed their families and also create a cohesive culture, but also a rather sad tale of what redlining did to the city of New Haven and creating distrust between groups of people and destroying parts of the uh, Italian neighborhood that was there and also creating fractures and fissures throughout the community and how in some ways pizza has helped some people keep a little bit of the cohesion that the immigrant story kept. So I highly recommend this. I'll put it in the liner notes, the exact name of this documentary, but it was super interesting. Great. I appreciate that. And I really, after having spent four years in college, and then I lived in New Haven another four years while I was in grad school, I really don't feel like I came close to being an actual resident of New Haven. And I would love to know a lot more about New Haven. At the last reunion I went to, which I think was our 25th, I was really impressed by how the how Yale is trying to reach out on all its edges to interact better with the city of New Haven, both its geographical edges and its other other metaphorical edges. And I think that's a real opportunity that was not as widely as available when we were in college. And I'm really glad to see Yale doing that. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to hearing about other classmates' lives. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.